Disclosure, presented by Exclusion, and we've got Rick Smith, CFO of Parchment. Rick, thank you for taking time out of your Friday morning to be with us today. My pleasure. You know, Rick and I, I came to know Rick from a now infamous LinkedIn post that he made, and it, it had such an impact that I'm actually bringing it up a year later. And it was about how, you know, everyone was running around like crazy when the pandemic hit last March. And if I remember correctly, the post was stimulus payments probably aren't the answer. Let's do a moratorium on debt payments. And I think history has proven that there was a lot of credence to that. So you're ahead of your time, sir. (laughs) I don't know about that, but I'm I'm an armchair economist in my house. Yeah. (laughs) There's a ton of armchair economists, but you at least had the, to get your ideas out there, which most people just poke holes in other people's ideas. It was, you know? it was an interesting angle because I just didn't hear a lot of folks talking about it. And for me, when the, when the um, uh, challenges first hit, you know, people are worried about paying their mortgages and landlords are afraid to give rent relief because they have a mortgage to pay on their, on their apartment building. And yeah. then businesses, you know, their biggest fear is, uh, is both the commercial rent that they have to pay as well as the debt payments they might have if they have debt on their books. And so I just, yeah. I looked at the situation and I thought instead of helicoptering a bunch of money out to people uh, to spend, yeah. uh, they're still going to have those mortgages and they're still going to have those rent payments. Uh, probably step one would have been to find some sort of way for the government or the Fed to step in and do some sort of moratorium on debt payments. And yeah. that would have kind of a trickle down impact throughout the economy because at some point somebody's probably either paying a mortgage or paying rent. And yeah. uh, that would be uh, kind of a fear that would be alleviated from them. So that's kind of the angle I was taking. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't even want to bring up that you went to U of A because I'm an ASU <laughs> guy. <laughs> so I'm going to focus on MBA from Dartmouth. Yeah. I mean, that's not too shabby. Um, <laughs> and w- another reason why I wanted to talk to you was, you know, most of our client base is in, you know, the mid cap range, probably not more than a billion dollars mm-hmm. um, in annual revenue. And you've got a unique background in that you've worked with, you know, everything from healthcare to some light retail to uh, now you're, you know, working for Parchment, a credential management company, but whether private equity backed or not, you've kind of made a career out of, you know, really uh, playing in in that mid cap space. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to get your perspective on, a lot of different things, um, but I know you and I were talking about. You know, you've been in. Have, has every you've been at what three or four places that have gone and got private equity investment? I think going all the way backwards at some point, one, two, three, four, five places. Yeah, either private equity or venture. Okay, and I mean, I'm sure you've seen just there are there are so many especially younger companies who they just know that uh, we want to find a way to get we need private equity funding Mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily know you know where to even start and they're getting advice from places but are are those you know people uh, really um, impartial in the advice that they're giving Um, so i kind of wanted to start with what should companies and founders entrepreneurs uh, executives be focusing on in terms of how to find the right private equity partner? 
Yeah, and it's a great question. And I actually get this all the time. I, I was talking to a founder of a great business here not too long ago, and he told me he wanted to go raise a huge round with a, a really well-known firm. And I looked at him and, and, and he also told me that his business was close to break even. And my first question was why? Yeah. And I hear that a lot. People get enamored because they, they see all these folks doing big rounds. And all you're doing when you do a big round and you're kind of small is giving up a bunch of equity up front at a low valuation yeah. for cash that you probably don't need right now and might not need for a few years. So I looked at him and was kind of like, well, why? And so yeah. it's, this is a great topic. Um, let me start off by kind of breaking down the different stages that companies are at. And I'm going to skip past that initial startup phase when folks are either funding it uh, straight out of their own pockets or through their credit cards or through angels. Yeah. <laughs> and so let's go straight to the, the venture stage. And so uh, in there, there's no hard and fast rules on this stuff, by the way, um, yeah. in terms of what's what. And things yeah. have really blurred over the last couple of, uh, couple of years. But let's start off at the venture stage. So the founder's building a company around a good idea. Uh, the company most likely is not profitable and they might not even have any revenues yet. And so just to establish some of the terminology that, that people might hear when talking about this stuff, okay. if you're losing money in the venture space, uh, they call it a burn rate. And really what yeah. they're talking about is not how much you're losing from an accounting standpoint, but how much are you spending from a cash standpoint? Overhead, often, right? That's one of the first questions somebody will ask is, is what's your burn rate? And they usually want to know what your burn rate is on a monthly basis. So you might say my burn rate is 200K a month. Or you might say annually, my burn rate is 2 million bucks, but most likely they're going to want to focus on what is your burn rate on a monthly basis, because they care about how much money you're losing right now, not yeah. on an annual basis. Yeah. And what they're doing with that, by the way, is they're framing how, how big of a cash raise do you probably need to do? Okay. If you don't have revenues yet, I love the fancy term people have come up with your pre-revenue. 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 <laughs> it takes away the stigma of, say, yeah. uh, stigma of saying, we haven't sold anything yet. We don't know what we're doing. <laughs> And so at this stage, the VC firm, they're investing in an idea and, yeah. and I'm going to uh, put a little asterisk here, an idea and maybe the leader, maybe the founder. Yeah. Maybe. Vision. They might look at the founder and say, that person might get us kind of far, or they might look at the founder and say, that person isn't the one to carry this forward, but the idea is really good. Yeah. And they're going to, they're going to judge that. So uh, for a founder raising capital at this stage, uh, the one balance, which I just brought up that you have to think through is, is how much do we truly want to raise right now? Because yeah. if you raise too much, you're just giving up a bunch of equity at yeah. a low valuation for cash. That's just going to be sitting in your bank account for years. Yeah. Conversely. Oh, and by the way, you might give up too much equity and you might give up control. Yeah. Conversely, you, you have to raise enough so that you're constantly not in a cash raising mode because it takes up a lot of time to sit there and pound the pavement and raise yes, cash. It does. So that's kind of the, the balance that you're trying to strike. Okay. If I'm a founder, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to model out how much cash am I gonna burn through over the next two years? That's usually a good target is to do a raise every two years when you're in initial stages. Okay. How much cash am I gonna burn through over the next two years and model it out with all the revenues we think we're gonna have coming in, with all the cash that we think we're gonna burn through for salaries and for other expenses, and let's target doing a raise that'll get us through um, two years. Again, don't raise too much, but you also need to raise enough. That's yes. kind of that, that balance. And that's where having somebody who's pretty financially savvy to help you model this stuff out and think through everything is, yeah. is super helpful. So once you've kind of figured out how much you wanna raise, the next question is, is what kind of VC firm do we wanna work with? And because most likely, unless you're well known and your company has a high profile and people are reaching out to you, you might have to pound the pavement and put together uh, some sort of slides or, or a pitch or a business plan 
to help the VCs understand what you're trying to accomplish, why you're doing the raise and how much you're going to spend. So question one is, is what kind of VC firm do we want to pair up with? Do we want somebody who has experience in our industry? Do we want somebody who has experience with companies our size or is in our geography? So that's kind of question one. But question two for me is, is am I, do I want to raise money from a passive investor or do I want to raise money from a VC firm that's going to be a lot more active in my business? Okay. And right off, you might, you might go to one or the other and say, well, of course, I'd want to do an active or of course, I'd want to be yeah. passive. Yeah. Um, but there, there's different circumstances that might lead you to go in one direction or another. So if you're a first time entrepreneur, you've never built a business and you might need a lot of handholding. Yeah. I would suggest you probably go down a more active route where you find somebody who will be actively asking you about how your business is doing and how they can help on a monthly or quarterly basis. Yeah. They're going to be rendering a lot of strong viewpoints and board meetings. And then also, um, they're going to ask you to put together, you know, kind of constant updates of your business plan so they can re-review everything and how you're spending your money. Okay, yeah. So a lot of founders need to go in that direction, but they don't really want to because yeah. there's a lot of, um, they might classify it as being interfering, but at the same time, just because you founded a business and, and you have a good idea does not mean you're great at building a business and, and growing a business. And yeah. so you have to kind of put the ego aside and say, I know this isn't going to be fun. Yeah. but I know that this is going to be helpful if I go in this direction. Yeah. Conversely, if I'm an experienced uh, entrepreneur and I've done this a couple of times and I've proven that I'm, I'm pretty good at building and scaling a business, then I might go for more passive money where it'll just be a little easier. And you know, it sounds bad to say it. They can kind of get out of my way while I focus on doing yeah. what I've already done a couple of times before. Yeah. So having it in your head, what you're truly willing to accept as, as a founder is yeah. super, super important. And point. again, just because you're great at coming up with an idea and starting up a business does not mean you're great at managing a business that um, has, you know, whatever, 100 employees, multiple locations, uh, you need to build out a management team. So, yep. Yeah. And if you're not bringing on an active, you know, partner and you need that, then you might need to go out and pay somebody to do a lot of those things. So, you know, depending on, you know, what, how much the round is. You know, it could be a two birds with one stone. Obviously, mm -hmm. your private equity partner isn't going to be your CFO necessarily, but being able to help. Yeah. Uh, it's a good point. Help, they won't do the work for you for the most part, but they'll yeah. help you and they'll help you evaluate talent and bring in the right people. They might know people and yeah. they'll help send them your way. Um, so that's that's helpful. Um, the other thing I'll say too is, is, and this sounds funny to say, but you will be judged by the company you keep. So if you attract well-known investors, that will attract other well-known investors either now or down the line when you need to raise subsequent rounds of capital. But if you um, raise money from investors that nobody's ever heard of, it probably won't be that helpful, helpful for you down the line. And this isn't just at the venture stage. This is at all stages. When big name firms get involved in investing in your business, everybody pays attention. And that will probably generate more likelihood that down the line, they're going to want to invest in your business too. It's kind of like a stamp of pre-approval you hit the nail on the head. I think that's why sometimes the more well-known firms, they're able to just to negotiate much better terms because that, you know, just their involvement gives inherent credibility to an idea or, or a venture. So, um, so you're an entrepreneur, you, you've, you've come up with the dollar amount you want to raise. You have a general idea of, of who you want to get it from. So the next step is, is really to put the word out that you're looking to raise capital. And there's a lot of ways to do that, but it is funny how much word gets around. And yeah. so if you start reaching out to folks, you will probably get more folks reaching out to you. 
So yeah. there's a lot of meat here to talk about. So right yeah. off the bat, let's say you have a great profile. People are familiar with their business, your business. You might get 20 or 30 or 40 VC firms who are interested in investing in your business. Yeah. And so as the founder, you're sitting there saying, oh, wow, this is awesome. Like yeah. everybody's interested <laughs> in, investing my, in my business. Yeah. Let me, I'll throw this one on the table. You might get a lot of interest, but the odds of you closing those, those investors is actually really low. They're looking yeah. at dozens and dozens of deals at the same time they're looking at your company yeah. and they'll look at dozens and dozens of deals to close one. So why yeah. are they doing this? They are doing this to learn things and, yeah. and they might be interested in your business, but otherwise they look at it as being valuable because they have an analyst level person who's, yeah. who's reviewing all this stuff and putting out due diligence lists. And they'll probably be interested in learning about your company, if not to invest in it, but because they might invest in some of your competitors or they might invest in, in stuff that's in tertiary uh, markets uh, to your space. And so they're just trying to learn and populate a database and figure out what segments are hot within that segment, what companies are hot, who should we be taking a look at? So when you have interest from big names and it's 30 or 40 uh, firms reaching out to you, I'm telling you that funnel drops off so fast from 30 or 40 to five uh, that you'll, you'll, wonder, you'll start to freak out and say, oh my God, am I going to close anybody at this stage? What, what just happened here? How did we yeah. go from 30 or 40 to five? It, yeah. It's totally natural. That's what happens. And it usually, from my knowledge, they not, they, they'll drop off after the initial conversation. So it'll usually, like the, a lot of these, they'll, they'll listen to your pitch, but it'll be, you know, right after that they'll Maybe either then or after they give you a due diligence list and you, you populate a data room with some information about the business. But at some point, they really do want to learn a lot about your margin profile, especially your gross margin profile, because that helps them, again, evaluate not just the business, yeah. but the industry. Yeah. And so a lot of times they'll stick around through that initial phase okay. and then they'll drop out. That's um, good to know. And so the hard part is, is you're a founder and if you have 30 or 40 companies expressing interest and they're each giving you a generic due diligence list that they send out over and over again, yeah. you cannot let the process manage you. You have to manage the process. So point. what I do is, is I look at all these due diligence lists and I come up with a fair cross section of questions that I'm willing to answer in round one. And, yeah. uh, you know, you might have to client like blind a lot of stuff for client names or, or kind of blind a lot of stuff. So you're not giving away too much information because yeah. Again, that could end up in a competitor's hands if that yeah. VC ends up investing in one of your competitors. Yeah. And so you just have to be super smart and, and thoughtful about what you're willing to show up front and then yeah. what you're willing to save for later rounds. But usually up front, if, if there's a due diligence list uh, that's 50 questions and it's 30 firms, take a cross section of it and figure out what's reasonable. And that's what you populate data room number one with. And that's all okay. they really get. And then often from there, they'll want to do a phone call just to chat through the business and get to know the, the founder and maybe the CFO or other members of the leadership team. It's usually a one hour call. It's yeah. usually after this stage that you'll start to see a big drop off from that initial batch to the five or six or 10 who are truly interested in learning more about the business and going deeper. Okay. That was, that was, that was much more thorough than I thought you were going to take it. That was excellent. <laughs> um, the next thing to think about too is when you're when you're raising funds from a VC firm, uh, they'll probably one fund, one firm will invest in your initial VC capital raise. Okay. But when you go to do subsequent raises, yeah. they're probably going to want to bring in other VC firms that they know and that they work with a lot. And so a lot of times for a first round, you'll see around a uh, funded between like, I don't know, you know, one in five million bucks by VC firm X. And then when you go to raise the next round, the next five or 10 million, um, you'll, you'll often see like three or four firms who invest in the second round. 
Usually VC firm X isn't going to want to invest 100% in the second round. They're going to want to start to reduce their risk and bring in uh, other partners. And a lot of times it's folks they've worked with over and over again. That's why a lot of times when you look at VC deals, you'll see the same couple of firms investing with each other uh, over and over again. These are firms, they know each other and they feel super comfortable with each other and they have a lot of chemistry with each other. And so they do, they like to work together. And what's helpful as a founder is that since these folks have generally worked together, when you get to the board level discussions and board meetings, and they're all going to have board seats because they're probably going to require getting a board seat when they invest, um, there'll be a lot of chemistry on the board and you won't be starting from scratch. The only hitch as the founder is if you've given up control in this process, um, it does make it a little easier for the VCs to um, align against you if the business isn't performing or if they don't perceive that you're performing. And so that can be a real challenge uh, in, in this process. And, most founders assume they will be with the company from uh, day one to 10 years later. And it's just, it's not, not realistic. So many founders eventually uh, either switch roles within a company or leave. And, uh, and, and so, you know, just having that idea that if you give up control, there's always a chance that, that you might lose your job at some point or switch to a different job. That's really important too. Hey, I mean, I know it was different with Apple, right? Cause they went public, but if it could happen to Steve jobs, <laughs> yeah. it can happen to you. Yeah. So yeah, it, I think, it, you know, it's funny. I would love to see, um, I don't know if there have been like, uh, like, uh, uh, PhD studies on this stuff, but there, to me, it's super interesting because the skill set of founding a business is so different than the skill set of growing a business. I would love to see, uh, what percentage of founders are still with the business, you know, up to a certain revenue level and then up to the next revenue level and up to, next, I, I think it'd be really interesting to see that. And I've been a part of so many businesses where the, the founder was very thoughtful and decided at some standpoint that they didn't want to stay in that top role. So they moved to a different role within the business and then brought in a more professional manager who's used to growing businesses. And I've been in that situation a couple of times and it's really been, it's really been great if, if you can do it right. But I think for a lot of founders, it's not what they love. They yeah. don't love the later stages. They love the early phase. And once they can separate yeah. the, themselves and the ego from, hey, I'm walking away from the, the baby I built, yeah. Um, they're a lot happier a lot of times too, which is interesting to see. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, because you're right. I think a lot of it is just, you know, obviously there's a lot to it, but appetite for risk and, you know, how, how much do founders really want to be in the weeds long term? And I think the bigger it gets, the more, the easier it is in a lot of cases for them to kind of let go because they've in their eyes maybe done the, their part, done the hard part. And, you know, their perception of it. Um, a lot of times as an entrepreneur too, I mean, just from a personality standpoint, you're, you're kind of used to going it alone. You're kind of used to saying, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And everybody needs to fall in line. But as a company gets bigger and more complicated, yeah. uh, you have to be willing to build that roundish table of, of leaders and, yeah. and listen to them. Yeah. And I think it's tricky for a lot of founders to switch to that. And, and again, having having that charisma and that confidence to start a business is really different than building a cohesive management team and motivating a large number of staff. And especially as you get a lot of locations and the complexity goes up, it's just, it's a very different style of leadership that a lot of founders just can't, can't um, kind of gravitate towards. And so, you know, I get it. We're all good at certain stages. And I often say that too, when I look at myself, Um, I don't know if I'd want to be a CFO at the startup phase. And I don't know if I'd want to be a CFO if a company's like, uh, you know, billion dollars plus, but I yeah. love that uh, growth equity stage and I love yeah. maybe the late stage venture stage. Those are what fit for my personality. And yeah. I would have no problem walking away at some point if the business gets too large because it's just, it's not what I love to do anymore. So I'd yeah. rather go find what I love to do. Yeah. 
Um, and I think you answered a little bit of this, but you know, you particular, you know, holding a CF role, a CFO role in a number of these companies, um, you've seen firsthand how the role of CFO changes, you know, after private equity is involved. And I know that there's going to be a lot of shades of this answer. Um, but how does the role of CFO change as, um, you know, the, the company crosses that line of uh, taking on equity partners? Yeah, you bet. First, first, let me finish kind of going through the stages. Oh, you weren't? Okay, okay. Yeah, because that's really just the venture stage. And so, okay. um, you know, to, to start to tick through the next three stages, the early stage growth equity, the late stage growth equity, and then the buyout stage, um, okay. you know, it really is a different approach to how you raise capital, completely different approach. Okay. So once you graduate from the venture stage, at that point, you have a viable business idea that you've proven out and you're, you're no longer losing money, most likely. Um, some growth equity firms might have a, a venture fund that they'll invest in venture and then kind of graduate you up. But in most cases, if, if your venture investors see that you're kind of uh, at a higher valuation and you're no longer a venture stage firm, they're going to want to take their money off the table and capture their return. Yeah. And so at that point, they're going to look to have you sell to a growth equity fund. And okay. a lot of times when I'm talking to growth equity funds, you'll see the first question they ask is, do you have a burn rate? Because if you yeah. have a burn rate, you're, you're not re yet ready for them. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they'll accept it if you have a burn rate and you have a clear path to profitability. But for the most part, for a lot of uh, growth equity firm, firms, that's kind of the minimum, minimum okay. thing. Yeah. And so at the growth equity stage, and especially the early stage, you have a viable business that you've proven out in the venture stage. Um, you're profitable now. And uh, a lot of what is going to happen going forward is going to be adapting your product into like uh, tertiary segments okay. and, and growing your business that way or getting into new markets. And okay. you'll also start to do some M&A. So at this stage, what the growth equity fund is investing in is they're investing in the idea. You probably now have a business that's viable and they're not just investing in the founder, they're starting to invest more and more in the management team. And what they're giving you that money for is no longer really to prove out the concept, it's to grow the business. It's to invest in a sales force, it's to help you develop the product into tertiary areas and it's to help you grow into new markets. And again, there's always uh, often an M&A component that's gonna start to happen. Um, so growth equity firms, they tend to have a lower risk profile, meaning you know the venture folks are investing in a bunch of companies hoping that a couple are gonna pay off and yeah. cover their losses on the rest of the fund. With growth equity, that's gonna be kind of, they're gonna invest in fewer things and they're gonna go with bigger investments and they're gonna tolerate most likely fewer investments that don't work out. And a yeah. typical check size at the initial stage of growth equity is probably going to be more in that uh, 20 to $50 million range. And then as you get into later, later stages of growth equity, that might go to 50 to 150 million. And again, there's no hard or fast lines here. Yeah. The other thing that happens too when a growth equity fund invests is they're probably going to bring on debt to help fund some of the investment. And because the business is now profitable, it's easier to get some bank loans so you can put some debt on the book and their books. And they're going to do this because it'll help magnify their returns and actually reduce their risk. So a lot of times if it's um, a $40 million check that you're going to get in total uh, to invest in your company, it's probably going to be something like 20 million in equity or 20 million in debt. It really depends on the financial profile of the company, yeah. um, but it's pretty highly likely there will be a debt component of the investment at this stage. 
So you're sitting there, you, you've, you, you're looking to raise growth equity uh, money. Um, how do you go about doing that? Now, rule number one, which is really tricky here, is, is you do have to maximize uh, the return for your initial group of investors. And you know, as a CFO, you have to be super mindful uh, that that's important. Yeah. Um, if you're pretty small, you're probably not going to engage an investment banker who's going to to go do a complex process uh, where there's bidding and, and a lot of parties. So yeah. you probably once again are going to start reaching out to different growth equity firms. Uh, maybe your venture investors will help you go through that process. You'll have to package up your story again in a nice pitch deck and maybe yeah. some sort of uh, a business plan or something like that. But it really in some ways won't differ that much from how you approached the venture stage. Okay. And you'll probably get a lot of interest again, initial interest, and that'll drop off just like before. Yeah. Um, and you'll do a lot of in-depth meetings. Yeah. Once again, you have to decide what are you looking for? Are you looking for a, a growth equity firm that has experience in your industry? Is there some other affinity you have towards them? And I would also say that chemistry is huge here. Yeah. Uh, you're going to be dealing with these folks on a constant basis. So yeah. the chemistry is a big deal. And yeah. then I would focus a lot too on how they're going to put together the deal in terms of if they're going to bring on debt, which they most likely will, how much debt do you feel makes sense for them to bring on? Because you don't want yeah. them to put together the deal only to find out that you're really limited by how much you can spend due to the debt. Yeah. And also, you know, kind of scary if things don't go exactly according to plan, is the debt going to become an issue or, and are you going to have some problems paying off that debt? Yeah. So kind of thinking through all those steps is, is super important. Um, complexity is about to go through the roof. And at this stage, if you don't yeah. have a CFO, it is pretty likely that the growth equity firm will, will require you to, to bring on to an experienced CFO to manage all this stuff. And I'll talk more about that later in terms of, of uh, why and what does the CFO do. Uh, so the growth equity fund is giving you money. You're starting to expand your offerings. You're starting to get in new markets and you're starting to do more M&A. At some point, uh, you might need a lot more capital to grow the business. And maybe the growth equity fund can grow with you and give you more money. Maybe they'll bring in, like often happens, again, another growth equity firm that they know uh, that can help uh, fund that round. Or maybe they'll look to cash out because they've gotten nice gains. And yeah. then you go to more of a later stage growth equity firm that has deeper pockets and can write a bigger check. And so um, you, you'll see that at some point, and you should be having conversations with your growth equity investors. What is their time horizon? And is there a valuation at which they would love to get off and cash in their chips and let somebody else kind of move it forward? Okay. When you get into the later stage growth equity, again, the check size is probably more in that 50 to $150 million range, but the game plan probably hasn't changed that much. Yeah. Uh, there's gonna be more growth in terms of services. You're really trying to, to sell as much as you can through your existing sales force to your existing customers. So if you can offer tertiary, uh, uh, services or products to what you're already selling through that sales force and to those customers. That's the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. And then, um, you know, again, you'll continue to expand in geographies and it could get international, which gets super complicated. Yeah. Most likely at this size, there's going to be a lot more M&A. You'll probably be closing at least one deal a year, if not two or three. Yeah. And um, some of them could be uh, life-changing to the company. Some, these yeah. are the deals that are like, twice the size of the company, you know, you double, you double the size of the company here and there, because if you're sitting there at say $80 million in revenues, you can do small acquisitions. It takes a lot of time and uh, you won't grow very quickly, but you can do small acquisitions. But if you're sitting there at 80 million in revenues or hundred million in revenues, do you want to spend that much time buying a company that has five to 10 million in revenues? Or do you want to go buy something that has 40, 50, 60 million in revenues? Yeah. You'll spend almost as much time doing the, the small deals as the big deals. So, 
a lot of times you're just best off focusing on big deals that won't be such a, a, a they're going to be the same amount of distraction. Just focus on the big deals a lot of times. Um, the other thing that happens when you go to raise later stage growth equity is at that point, you'll probably want to engage an investment banker. And what an investment banker is doing is they're helping to package you up to raise these, to raise these bigger rounds of capital. And then they'll go to all sorts of private equity firms, engage interest and get a feel for pricing and stuff like that. And you'll go through an auction process that in a lot of ways isn't, isn't different than uh, any other auction process you'd see in yeah. terms of we're going to give you a bunch of information, give us what you think the business is worth and maybe how much you'd fund it in terms of debt or equity or what the structure would be, possibly even give us a range of, of where you'll think you'll come in at. And a lot of times there might be multiple rounds of bidding where people drop off as the valuations get higher and higher and higher. And at some point you'll probably narrow it down to two or three. And at that point you might say, we're looking for final offers. So put together your final offer and then we'll get into an exclusive uh, uh, due diligence process with the final bidder. And so really you're using this process to drive up the price. Yeah. The one challenge you might have is you might have bidders that are getting deeper and deeper in the process who you truly aren't excited about working with down the line. Happens all the time. Yeah. Highest bidder isn't the one that you love. Yeah. That being said, you have to maximize shareholder uh, value for the exiting investors. And so you do have a fiduciary responsibility to try to maximize the offer. So yeah. you might end up cutting a deal with somebody that you're not excited about. And that's tough. I mean, that's yeah. life. You, you might not have a choice. <laughs> I will say that during the process, you also might be able to dissuade potential investors that you aren't excited about working with. But again, remember that you have a fiduciary responsibility to try to maximize shareholder uh, value yeah. for the uh, exiting investors. So you really do have to drive up the price as much as you can from whoever you can get it from. So that's kind of life. Um, yeah. The M&A process is super complex. That's probably a whole nother call to go through. But at some point, <laughs> you'll go through a due diligence process and yeah. at some point, a uh, deal gets closed. Old investors are paid off and now you have a new investor and probably uh, a new uh, batch of debt on your books. And yeah. probably over time, as the company gets bigger and bigger and the deals get bigger and bigger, the debt also gets bigger and bigger. So kind of managing that process. I'm gonna use this capital, just as I said before, we're gonna fund it for more, more service lines, more products. We're gonna to add to your sales force. We're gonna do whatever we can to grow the business. Uh, there could be an international component. There could be more M&A. It's just everything gets bigger and bigger in size and scale. It's funny, you know, when you said a company makes a decision, hey, we're, there's no, you know, we're not in the red anymore. We've proven the concept and they're scaling, you know, you, obviously the executive team, you can always see that's when typically the changes will really start to happen. A couple Absolutely. of our clients, you know, it's happened in the last year where, I mean, we didn't have a line of sight into kind of where they were in their life cycle, but you can start to see CFO would change over. Mm -hmm new people coming in because it is a, a different skill set. And to your point, which I wasn't even aware as much that it, that they're also getting people in place to attract that really large round. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. Um, they, they care and you'll see it in every pitch deck. There will be a page with executives and photos and backgrounds. And, and it certainly helps on that, on that page. If those executives have gone to great schools, have yeah. worked for great companies <laughs> that people are familiar with, yeah. um, that's a hundred percent true. It's a big deal. Yeah. And, and look, people are good at specific. Usually people are good at specific yeah. segments of that life cycle. A lot of people don't recognize that and think they would be great at operating at a small level and at a big level. Some people can adapt, a lot cannot. 
when I've been at a small scale, I get nervous when we hire executives who've only worked at large companies because a lot of times they show up and they're, they're, they're not used to being a player coach. They're yeah. used to just coaching and it's yeah. a whole different ballgame. It really is. And so often when I'm hiring um, executives, I like somebody who's at least worked for one or two smallish or midsize companies if they're coming out of big companies. That's a really good point. It's very, it's a very different job. CFO jobs, insanely different, but it's very, very different. Is there a, is, I know it's not a hard and fast rule. Is there a revenue number typically that you think that line is? No, cause uh, it also, uh, it varies by industry. It varies by number of employees and it varies by number of locations. And it varies okay. if you're just domestic or you're domestic and international. Um, okay. I mean, look, you can have a hundred employees, but have five employees in 20 offices. That's very different than trying to manage a business that has a hundred employees in one location. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot to it. I've seen some people who are amazing at, at moving from super large companies to small companies, yeah. but I would say a lot of times it, it's a struggle for them. They're just yeah. not used to doing a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff. You know, I joke a lot of my, uh, a lot of my friends who I went to business school with who are, you know, leaders at massive companies would probably throw up if they saw some of the stuff I have to deal with on a day in and day out basis. But the yeah. thing is, is I actually love it. You know, for me, yeah. I, I like knowing how everything works because yeah. then it helps me formulate the game plan. Yeah. And I love being close to how the work is done. Yeah. And, and it just, it helps me know how to do my job better. And so yeah. I always wonder in my head, could I do what I do at a billion dollar revenues company? Um, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'd be good at it. Maybe I wouldn't have the right skill sets. I don't know. Yeah. But I do know that I can do it at the size and scale that I operate in and feel super comfortable with that. Yeah. You gave us a whole overview of... Wait, one more stage. Oh, yeah. Okay. This one's quick. <laughs> the buyout stage. So at the end of all this stuff, uh, you'll see the huge transactions. You know, these are the billion dollar transactions, $2 billion transactions, tons of debt. At that point, a lot of times what the buyout firm is, is doing is they're investing in a business that they actually think has been undermanaged. And so a lot of times they're going to buy the company, they're going to put a ton of debt on the books, and they're probably going to look to replace the management team while continuing to do a lot of M&A and, and other types of growth. Um, th these are very different situations, especially for a CFO, because so much of it becomes cash management and debt and stuff like that. So yeah. it's a whole different ballgame. I really haven't operated at that stage, so I can't talk too much about it, um, but it's, it's definitely a different ballgame. I think you answered... The, if you want, we can go into uh, kind of how the CFO role then changes in each of these stages. Yeah, and I want to talk about, obviously, you're in the process of writing a book, and maybe, maybe not this, you know, verbalizing some of this stuff will get, get, get the pen sharpened. But yeah, I think that it fits into kind of, yeah, how does the, the role, and you, you talked about some of this already, but how does the, the role of CFO change? Yeah. And then what is the angle of, of you know, your upcoming book? Yeah, you bet. So um, it really is very different at every stage and, and every stage has different trickiness to it. And at every stage you have to be uh, skilled in different areas. So first of all, the venture stage is super, super tricky because a lot of these firms are small and they can't afford a CFO. And so a lot of times they try to get by without a CFO. Sometimes you find a venture stage company that has a CFO, but they might have the CFO title, but they don't really have the CFO background or skill set. Or sometimes you might find a really great venture backed firm that does have a really good CFO. And because of the size and scale and, and you know, CFO comp is going to be fairly high. Um, 
you'll probably ask the CFO to not just run financial stuff, but a lot of times at that size and scale, the CFO is running HR and they're running facilities and they might run other aspects of the business. Like, I don't know, you know, project management or data and analytics or something like that. You have to find a way to get, get more stuff under the CFO because you probably can't make the math work on them just overseeing uh, financial planning and analysis and stuff like that. But here's the hard part. A lot of venture stage companies really could use the help of a super skilled CFO because they're going through a lot of changes, a lot of growth, and they're doing capital raises. And they really do need somebody to help them think through a lot of these issues. And, and so it's a tricky, tricky stage where they can't afford it, but they kind of need it. And you might be able to find a part-time CFO or something like that, but are they going to be bring the right skill set to the table and are they willing to do the work? So a lot of times at the venture stage, companies choose to not have a CFO and instead they get by using like a day-to-day -day bookkeeper who's just focusing on the accounting, or maybe they bring in a controller. And what happens then is a lot of stuff doesn't get done um, right, or a lot, of, a lot of things aren't thought through in terms of if we, if we do things this way now, what will it look like when we're three or four times the size? Nobody is thinking ahead. The modeling just so isn't there. A lot of mistakes are made in the early years. And at some point you, you have the size and scale and money to bring in that CFO. And then yeah. they're probably going to spend their first year fixing what happened going backwards. Because yeah. to get into a nerdy accounting topic, which I, I've avoided thus far, <laughs> um, the income statement is, is uh, activity during a period of time. Yeah. The balance sheet has memory going back to the inception of the company yeah. because usually somewhere on the balance sheet, uh, there, there's a reflection of what has happened since day one. And if stuff wasn't done correctly in the early years, it's somewhere on that balance sheet and it's going to have to get fixed. Yeah. And then when you eventually have to go through an audit, um, everything on your balance sheet is going to have to get proven out in some way. And if you don't have detailed backup supporting everything on the balance sheet, you're most yeah. likely going to have to write it off. And yeah. so, if you are a venture stage company that's growing and your back office isn't done well, at some point there's a day of reckoning and, and it's a tough yeah. day. You're going to bring in a CFO and they're going to spend a lot of time just fixing what happened backwards and they're going to struggle to help you with what's going forwards. Yeah. So I, I don't know how, but I recommend that venture funds or venture backed firms find a way to get some sort of CFO help in some way to help them think through this stuff, organize it, set it up correctly from the start, get them yeah. on the systems that are going to be scalable over, over a long period of time, yeah. help think through the capital raises in terms of how much and how much should we raise and who do we want to go with? And, and, and let's put together a really thoughtful financial model to help us think through what's the appropriate size of a raise. It, it's really a tricky time for a company. And it, I know so many times when venture venture back companies get to a certain stage and they bring in somebody and that somebody's like, well, holy crap, this is going to take a while. Yeah. To fix. <laughs> What's it going happens. on? Um, so the other thing is, is once you get past um, the, the venture stage and you start to get into that early growth equity stage, at this point, the, the growth equity firms are probably going to look at you and say two things. We need you to have an experienced CFO and not just an experienced CFO, but somebody who's used to working with private equity firms. And you're going to have to produce audited financials. And by the way, if you're going to put debt on your company's books, you're probably going to need audited financials anyway. Yeah. So if you don't have a CFO in the venture stage, when you get to the growth equity stage, you're probably going to have to have one. And, and PE firms love working with CFOs that have worked with PE firms before, because there's a couple things here. First is, is they know what to give to the PE firms. Like what types of information are the PE firms looking for? Yeah. And they know how to communicate cleanly and clearly what's going on with the business. 
Yeah. But the other thing is, is that the PE firms at some point are going to want to hear a point of view beyond just the CEO's point of view. Yes. They're going to want to start to triangulate really what's going on with the business. And so they're going to want to start to talk to a lot of the other members of the executive team. And the CFO is a crucial, for, a crucial person for them to talk to because the CFO is probably going to bring a very different point of view about the business than a CEO or, or head of sales or something like that. Yes. And so PE firms love bringing in a CFO who's kind of done it before and knows how to work with them. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing is, is when you get into the growth equity stage and you're starting to do a lot more M&A and you're starting to go international, these are complicated things, super complicated. Yeah. And if you don't have experience doing either one of these, you're not going to add a ton of value in either process. And yeah. international stuff is so complicated. I remember when I was a undergrad, I thought, boy, it'd be cool to work in the international business. <laughs> now that I've done a lot of it, I've realized it's really complicated. It's heavy lifting. And yeah. I would rather have a 200 person operation in Manhattan than a yeah. five person operation in London. Cause I'll spend the same amount of time dealing with the two of those, but one of them is going to add a ton of value to my business and the other yeah. is probably not going to add a ton of value. Now that being said, there are great reasons to be international, but yeah. it is complicated. It can be a real time sink. You have to be super thoughtful about it and it helps if you've had experience doing it before. And then M and a is the same exact thing. I mean, you have, you have a seller is trying to, to talk the buyer into buying them for the highest price. Buyer is trying to talk a seller into selling to them because they're excited to buy them. And it's great to have a CFO who can really take more of a numbers focused kind of viewpoint and, and be a little bit more analytical about, okay, this is a pretty good deal, but at this price. And if we start going above that price, it, maybe it's not the best deal in the world. You really need that, that point of view, that unemo unemotional point of view uh, that a CFO is going to bring to it. Plus the CFO is going to have to do a lot of the integration post-close. And it's great to have the CFO's viewpoint in terms of what is it really going to take to merge these businesses and get it done. Um, private equity folks know the M&A process super well. I always say they do it professionally. I do it as a hobby, yeah. but they don't know the integration process as well as a CFO might. And so yeah. they might oversimplify some of the challenges post-close of merging the businesses especially if they're international. So it's great to have an experienced CFO who's, who's done these things before and can walk you through what are reasonable timelines, what's yeah. that process going to look like. I mean, honestly, you become a project manager at some standpoint, but okay. super, super tricky process. Um, the audited financials thing, I mentioned that earlier, that's a big deal. Getting, yeah. getting a company from small-timey accounting and small-timey systems to being able to get through an audit with a big four firm, that's a big project. Again, it's, yeah. it's not even an accounting project. A lot of times it's project management. There's Takes so many years that have to happen <laughs> yeah. to make it happen that uh, a PE firm is going to know that and they're going to want an experienced CFO who can help manage that process and make it happen. Yeah. And so that's another reason they're going to, they're going to focus on, uh, on somebody who's going to bring a lot to the table. And then, you know, there's two other things. One is, is that they're going to want a CFO who can help drive the leverage in the business where you're growing revenues at a faster rate than expenses. So they're going to want a CFO that really does understand the revenue side, but also understands the expense side and has a game plan for when we, when we grow the business by a million bucks, what needs to happen on the expense side to support that. Yeah. And usually for a lot of companies, it's headcount. So okay. what is your methodology for adding headcount? How do you choose yeah. when to add the next person and where to add them? Because everybody's always asking for headcount. How do you prioritize and say, okay, we, we get to hire one person, that department gets it. This is the level we're hiring and this is how much we're going to pay. You have to have a methodology for it because if you just let uh, the business itself tell you what they need, everybody's yeah. going to ask for more headcount. At some point, you're going yeah. to have uh, too many heads to deliver on the revenues that you have. 
Yeah. Uh, the, the final thing on the growth equity side is what I was talking about earlier, it's governance. And so the board is really going to want somebody beyond the CFO that they can have honest conversations with how the business is doing. And they need a CFO who um, is willing to, to kind of maybe, maybe um, help them understand stuff beyond um, just selling them on, hey, the business is doing great. Because the CFO is in a very tricky spot. They report into the CEO, but they also report into the board and the investors. Yes. And so um, it's a very tricky spot to sit. And so the, everybody needs to have somebody in that spot who they think is going to operate fairly for everybody, not just the CEO or not just the board, really somebody who's a good arbiter that kind of sits in the middle and is a good judge of what's going on and can communicate all that fairly and honestly and openly. Um, at this stage, honestly, it, the job is less... What I do is less of an accounting job, I think, than most people think. It's so much of a project management job, an operational job, a, a cross-functional communications job. I mean, I always say that if, if I'm doing my job well, I actually am not making a lot of decisions. I'm facilitating yeah. the process Absolutely. internally for the right group of people to have the right information and, and have a fair discussion about what we should do. And then we all collectively hold hands and decide it. But the last thing you want is your CFO producing forecasts you don't want your CFO making all these decisions because let's say I produce a forecast and we don't hit it. I'm not selling anything. Yes. Yeah, I can't yeah. go and make it up. I can't yeah. go as well. I, we missed the forecast that I gave you, but next quarter I'll sell more. Yeah. You really have to, to get the forecasts and get sales uh, forecasts and stuff like that from the folks internally and then hold them accountable for what they're telling you. Yeah. And, and if they're missing, they have to be accountable for it, not the CFO, but yeah. you have to facilitate the process to make sure this is all done super fairly, super clearly. And, and if we're missing what people are saying that we know exactly who to go to and talk through, why are we missing what we're missing? So a lot of times it's, it's less of an accounting job. You think it's less of a, a finance job. There's a big project management component and so much of it is, is facilitating. And the book, I mean, I want to hear about the book, man. What? Yeah, it's funny. So look, the book's half done. I'm about 150 yeah. pages in. And my guess is, is it needs to be 300 pages. Uh, and I, I write it in fits and starts. I just started writing down some of the stuff like we've talked about today. Because, you know, I went through a major MBA program and I went through an undergrad business program. And you're not going to learn this type of stuff anywhere. Yeah. Um, you might learn the uh, technical aspects of the job, but you won't learn all the different funky components of it, how to think through these things. Yeah. And you have to be good at so many things. I mean, you have to, I, I could rattle off a list. I mean, besides the obvious business stuff, I mean, you have to know a lot about accounting systems and, and business intelligence systems and payroll systems and payable systems and t and &E systems. And yeah. you have to know about taxes and facilities and corporate yeah. commercial insurance and group health insurance and 401ks and then and audits and, and yeah. banking and treasury. And it's mind blowing, right? Yeah. And then the funny thing is, is if you, if you have an international component, take that list and double it because it's all going to be different in, in foreign countries. And so the job is just so varied. I mean, you have yeah. to be good at 20 or 30 things. And yeah. so I just started to lay out what are the things you need to be good at and how do I think through kind of each of those areas? What's my thought process? And, and you should have a thought process on just about everything. Yeah. And, and so it's a generalist jobs, job in so many ways. And so I just started to lay it out and say, well, what does the job of a CFO truly look like? Because I think people have this image of it in their heads and yeah. it's probably pretty glamorous, the image they have, but the reality of it is, is not so glamorous. And there's just so yeah. many things you need to be good at and have a philosophy about. So yeah. that's all I've started to do is tell stories and walk people through how I think about stuff. 
and what are all the different areas you, you have to know just to help people understand the different components of the job. Yeah. You know, again, it's not something you're going to learn in an MBA program. Um, a lot of CFOs are ex-controllers, but if you're, if you were a controller before, that's only one aspect of the job. So what about yeah. the other 19? Or if yeah. you came up on the FP&A side, maybe you learned three or four aspects of the job, but what about the other 16? And, and so you have to be knowledgeable about a lot of stuff. And so when I looked backwards and I thought about it, when I was a CFO, um, you know, 10 years ago, I was, I was 10% as skilled as I am now, just because I've gotten so much more experience. I've worked across industries. Yeah. I've worked for different companies at different sizes and scale that I've just collected up all these experiences over time. And so yeah. I thought it might be nice to just start to lay it out in a, in a book that if folks are out there are curious about what a CFO does, or if they want the job and they want yeah. to figure out what do I need to, to know to be good at it, yeah. I'll lay it out for them and they can read it. And, and again, not, not a technical book at all. They can start yeah. to think through, this is the skill set I have now. And if I want to get to that, that level, these are yeah. the other 16 things I should focus on learning and, and yeah. trying to get exposure to. So that's really the, the, the nature of the book. The, the good thing is, is I'm, um, I'm a pretty fun writer. I'm not a dry writer, so it's not a dry book. And yeah. I pepper it with stories, like wacky stories, because I've seen so many bizarre things yeah. in, in all the time I've been doing this. Uh, nice. That I like to pepper it with just random stories of things that have happened along the way, just to keep keep the book kind of fun and funny too. Do you have a working title yet, or is not not? You know there what? I, this sounds funny, but I want to go the wrong direction, and I want to make the title yeah. extremely bland for no good reason whatsoever. Yeah. And so I most likely am going to try to call it the role of the CFO in growth and or venture and growth back or growth equity stages, something like yeah. that. Um, nice. Just to cover, really, this is what it is. I mean, no, yeah. no, no crazy title or anything like that. If yeah. you're going to read this, this is exactly what you're going to get from it. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't do it to sit there and sell thousands of copies. Maybe there's uh, mm. 200 people out there who want to read this, but yeah. for those 200 people, I think it'll be valuable. And I do often get um, like people on LinkedIn hit me up all the time. Folks who are finance directors or controllers who just want to yeah. chat and learn. Yeah. How do I get that job? How do I get into that role? And I have no problem walking people through kind of what I think it takes to get, get into the role and what do you have to be good at? And yeah. uh, um, that's really why I'm writing this is for those folks to help them think it through. I also think for a lot of private equity folks, it would be super helpful because yeah. the private equity folks I know are super skilled and they're all brilliant, but a lot of them have only worked in their, for their entire careers in private equity. And so they might not understand some of the day-to-day -day complexities of, of being on the ground. I mean, I'll tell you a funny story. This is actually in my book, but uh, I once told preview, the private equity guys. We got a guys, preview here. I, uh, I was CFO of a company and we merged two companies together and we were, you know, plotting out the systems conversion. Yeah. And I remember I looked at the private equity guy and I said, yeah, we're going to work on doing a systems conversion so we can get both companies on the same system. And I remember he looked at me and he's like, what does that take? Like four months? And I was like, oh my God, no, no. To do this correct, it's going to take at least a year. The yeah. amount of thoughtful planning that will go into it will be uh, insane. I mean, we will nail this thing perfectly. And uh, these are heavy lifting projects. There is yeah. so much that has to go into them to get them done right. And so, yeah. no, it's not a four-month project. For your, for your private equity firm, that has <laughs> employees, it might be a four-month project. But yeah. when you're combining thousands of employees, uh, uh, international operations, yada, 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 this is a, this is a one-year project. Yeah. That's awesome you'll be using personal stories because yeah. – I mean, you can, and in the classroom, whatever, even I've had this business three years and you just, things happen and you learn from it and people, they're going to have their own circumstances. They're going to have their own path, but there's so much that can be just drawn from those experiences yeah. and say, Hey, I'm not unique. You know, Rick has dealt with this and this is how he did. And, um, so I think mean, that like, those are always so much 
leaps and bounds more helpful than just kind of the typical how-to books. I mean, I'll, t- I'll tell you another quick story that's, that's in the book, but uh, uh, a company I was CFO of, we bought a small company in Italy and, uh, you know, services-based companies. So you have to do services-based accounting uh, and, and services-based revenue recognition, which is a very hot topic and it's a very yeah. complex topic. Yeah. So I flew to Italy and I met with the accountant who was doing the revenue recognition. And I asked him, can you walk me through the methodology that you have for recognizing revenue? And uh, he looked at me and he said, well, I figure out how much we want to pay in taxes and I work backwards. And I remember <laughs> hearing that. I wish so, we could do that. <laughs> okay, we're going to start migrating the accounting from Italy to the United States. Yeah. I think we're gonna, we'll, do, we'll do it how we need it done in the United States and we'll figure it out from there. And we did and it worked great. But I remember yeah. the minute he said that, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, interesting. Well, that's awesome. So maybe in the next, do you have a ballpark of, you think maybe in the next six months, maybe the next, you're probably not putting a time limit on yourself. Yeah. Stay, yeah. Just stay attuned to my LinkedIn feed and yeah. you'll see it at some point and uh, it'll be for sale for a nice modest price because I don't really care. Uh, <laughs> for me, for me, it's the fun in writing. I've always, yeah. people who know me have always known this. I've always done a ton of writing okay. and, uh, and I actually enjoy it, but I do it in fits and starts. So yeah. I'll have a couple of months where I'll bang out 50 pages or hundred pages. And yeah. then I won't touch it for a year. And then yeah. that causes me to have to go back and reread the whole thing. Yeah. And then I edit for three months and then I start yeah. writing again. So it's a very slow process nice. for me, but uh, I enjoy it. I really do. It's just finding the time and having yeah. the energy and the inertia to do it. Yeah. And the focus. Nice. So I think you kind of covered how, where and how most private equity based partnerships go bad. Yeah, I think obviously a, a lot of it is the business just isn't working. The business isn't viable, you know, especially when you've got companies investing a lot more with a lot less proven concepts, you know, pre-revenue is, is a lot more the norm than it ever has been. I mean, have you seen trends in, you know, outside of that, where these relationships go bad? Yeah, I think so much of it is in the communication. And by that, I mean, when management and especially the founder or CEO is communicating with the private equity folks or the venture folks, they have to be able to truly articulate what is going on with the business right now. And if the business is underperforming, they have to be able to cleanly and clearly articulate why is the business underperforming and what is the game plan to get it to perform. And, you know, a lot of venture folks or PE folks, they'll hold on to every document you ever give them and every presentation you've ever made. And they'll look backwards. They'll look backwards that you told them what you told them a couple of years ago to see how you executed on that. And if they look at the situation and feel like you're moving goalposts or you're constantly selling them on a future that never happens, it's just going to erode your credibility as, as a founder a CEO or a management team over time. And that's when the, the venture PE folks might look to swap out some, some, some leaders, um, yeah. to get some other folks in there, including people that they know who they've worked with in the past. I mean, venture and, and PE firms do that a lot. They'll bring in a CEO or a CFO from a different uh, portfolio company that they've had in the past because they feel comfortable with that person. So those are kind of uh, two things. But I also think that the PE firms and the venture firms, they will constantly look at, at if you, we have the right management team for the stage we're at. And I know we've beaten this one up, yeah. but they really will do that. And they'll push for changes because for them, they're betting on that team, especially the bigger and bigger a company gets, and they need the right folks in the right seats. Um, yeah. Super important to them. So yeah. they'll always be evaluating the leadership team to make sure it's the right group of people. Yeah, excellent. Well, I mean, I know we talked about this in a previous conversation that you know your career can be you know some of it's dumb luck, you know, and then some of it is you know intentional. This is what I like. This is what I don't like. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you've, you've been in the C-suite for a while now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've helped lead high growth companies, revenues over 300 million. If you could go back and give, yeah. you know, business school, Rick, any advice, <laughs> what would, I know this is like a cheesy question, but it, I, I'm genuinely interested. What would it be? I've evolved so much over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. So I, I think it's a really great question. Um, item one is on the system side. And, and I know it sounds boring, but you really do need systems in place that can help you scale to be two or three times the size. And these are, and there's great systems out there as long as you implement them well. That's actually item number one is uh, you, might, you might implement a great system that everybody's on, but if you do a poor job implementing it and haven't really thought it through, you're probably gonna, gonna not get the value out of it that you hoped you'd get. Yeah. But these are daunting projects, especially if you're of, a, of a, a certain size and scale to switch accounting systems or payroll systems or whatever. These are daunting projects. And I'll tell you yeah. that your staff will look at you like they don't wanna do the project. Yeah. They might be initially kind of along for the ride, but yeah. at some point as a leader, you're going to hit a wall where they're going to say, I already have my day job to do. And now we're doing this systems project and I'm not quite sure how this is going to help us. And boy, this is a lot of work and this kind yeah. of sucks. And that's where as a leader, you got to get people to push through because I'll tell you about a week or two before you go to implement that system, everybody's going to be throwing up their arms saying, this is never going to work. And this is stupid. Yeah. Why are we doing this? And I don't like Rick's project. And you push through it. And two months later, everybody is saying, oh, my God, this is so much better. (laughs) We did a great job. This is so much easier. But there's that life cycle of, hey, we're excited. We're interested. Oh, this sucks. I don't want to do it. I really don't want to do it. Okay, we're doing it. Hey, we did it. Um, That you as a leader have to manage people through. And, And so people are afraid to do these projects. But as a CFO, you have to have a game plan for if we're two or three times the size, what does our systems architecture look like? What types of reporting do we want to see? What's the cadence? How's this all going to work? How are we going to distribute it? Like you have to be super, super uh, thoughtful ahead of time and you have to push for those projects because if left to their own devices, a company won't do it and you have yeah. to. And then you'll find yourself in a tough spot. Um, the second one, and this sounds a little ruthless, but you really do have to have the right people in the right seats. Yeah. And, and if you want to do a lot of stuff, if you really want to do a lot of these projects and grow a business quickly and build the right systems, it sucks to do it, but you got to be kind of ruthless about it. You really have to get the right people in the right seats because yeah. I swear, if you have three awesome people with the right attitudes in the right seats, you can move mountains. But if you only have one or two and the other people just aren't helping you move forward, yeah. A, it's not fair to the one or two who have to do twice as much work because you lean on them more. Yeah. And B, you won't get as far as you want to get. So yeah. you really do have to have the right people in the right seats. And they're out there. You just have to be super clear about what you're trying to find and super discerning about who you hire because it's easy to hire and it's hard to fire. So yeah. build that team and, and, and be pretty firm about it. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. It is yeah. if you have the wrong, wrong folks. Um, this is the one I kind of talked about earlier about my friends in business school. And they're, they're probably laugh at half of what I do. But learn how everything works. You know, as a yeah. CFO, learn how it all works. Yeah. Learn, learn how everything flows through everything. Yeah. Um, and don't be afraid to ask dumb questions. And I frequently, that, you'll hear me say that exact phrase. I, asked, I said it yesterday. I'm going to ask a dumb question here. Ask the dumb questions. Learn yeah. how it works. Don't assume you know it. Don't assume you can skate by without asking. Yeah. Um, learn how it works because that'll really help you figure out what is the game plan as we scale. How am I going to grow this? What kind of systems do I need? Yes. Um, and never assume you know more than the people who are doing the work. 
Um, it's easy to do that as you get higher and higher in an organization to get further and further yeah. away from how the work gets done. Always feel comfortable asking the people who are doing the work, how do you do the work so that you truly know how it gets done? Because you might also oversimplify how it gets done. So super, super important. Such a good point. And then, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, I think when I first became a CFO, I thought I was the person who said yes and no to stuff. And then I figured out over time, I'm the facilitator, get the right people in the room, provide them with the information, foster an environment where people can have an open and honest conversation about stuff and yeah. let the group make the decision. But yeah. often the CFO is probably the last person you walk making the decision because they'll probably cheap out and say no. So um, <laughs> and you, you can't be that person. If you want to grow a business, you, you got to be focused on growth, but smartly growing the business, yeah. asking the right questions, putting resources in the right places, not letting the squeaky wheels get the grease, but making sure that we are thoughtful in, in how we spend our money and how we invest in people, that kind of stuff. Don't be the yes, no person, be the facilitator. That's a lot of it. I think somebody that sits down and listens to this, I mean, you, especially, I mean, you basically gave a, a, an in-depth breakdown of, you know, what, what founders, executives should be thinking through at each stage of, of the life cycle and uh, incredibly insightful from someone that's done it and been there in uh, not just one organization, multiple organizations. So Rick, I, I sincerely appreciate your time. This was awesome. No, my pleasure. I appreciate it. This stuff, it's super fascinating to me having kind of lived it. Uh, yeah. I, I love talking about it and I learn stuff, you know, every day too. So it's, it's good for me to talk about it and talk with other folks who do this kind of stuff because every once in a while they'll mention something to me and I'll be like, huh. So yeah. I'll give you actually a great example on that. Um, I'm looking at implementing some different business intelligence systems right now. And it's not an area I have a lot of knowledge about, but years ago I talked to two different people who were implementing systems. And I hit them up on LinkedIn and I said, hey, I'm looking at implementing some systems that I think you mentioned to me a couple of years ago. Do you mind hopping on a Zoom and we can talk this through and maybe I'll have some of my staff members. And in both cases, they were like, of course, no problem, glad to. And so it's super helpful, I think, to have that kind of sharing because um, look, I, I've learned a lot of stuff and I've made it pretty far in my career, but every, things change and there's stuff yeah. out there I haven't learned and systems especially change a lot. So yeah. for me, it's always helpful to have these kind of conversations and learn more and, and hopefully people can learn some stuff from me too. So glad to do it. Awesome. Thank you. That was excellent. <laughs>